as you will. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, team. Uh, back in the year that it was released, Disney's film Aladdin uh, was the top grossing animated film of all time. Pretty popular. Any Aladdin fans in here? Thank you. Yes. You are not ashamed to admit that you are adults and you watch Disney cartoons. That's awesome. Be Own it. Be real. That's good. Um, very popular movie uh, for lots of reasons. Probably one of the greatest is the uh, comedic genius of the late Robin Williams, who voiced the genie character, was on full display in that movie. And I thought if I was really clever, I would get a couple of his lines and like do them up here on stage to make everybody laugh. And I'm like, I can't do it. I'm not even good. Just don't pretend to be what you're not. So I got no Robin Williams impressions for you because it's not my thing. <laughs> but hilarious, hilarious voice acting. But it wasn't just the comedy. There's something about the storyline that is compelling. Uh, here our young main character has nothing. He's got absolutely nothing. He's an orphan. He's got no status. He's got no money. He's got no food. He's got no prospects. He's got no job. And uh, he comes into possession of the magic lamp that contains this genie figure, this uh, super-powered spirit being who can essentially do anything. And Aladdin now has command over this genie. He can get three wishes. Anything he wants to change. Anything he wants to be or become instantly will become a reality merely by him wishing it into being and voicing his wish to the genie. Now, you got to admit, for most audiences, we're like, ooh, how cool would that be? What about you? If you had the hypothetical, the mythical lamp, the three wishes, is there anything you'd change in your life? I didn't want to hear it, Jack. Because <laughs> I knew somebody was going to say, my first wish is for more wishes, and that's exactly what you said. <laughs> and by the way, in the movie, that was the first thing the genie nixed, right? None of that. You only get three, okay? So anything but that. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> anything in your life that you would like to change. Now, even if for a moment, while you're kind of pondering that, I mean, even if we set aside like just the frivolous wants, okay? The fancy car, the big house, the, I don't know, whatever, fancy trip to some exotic location several times a year. I, know, I don't know. Something, there's, there's probably a lot of things we would all want, that most honest people could immediately recognize our, their desires, their luxuries. They would be nice, but they're not really needs. So for a moment, let's set the luxuries aside and say, are there any actual needs, things that are maybe more legitimate pains and realities of your life, that if you could change, you would in a heartbeat? Uh, would you change the way you look? Would you change how much you had, your financial stability? Is there a relationship you'd restore in, in a heartbeat if you could wave the proverbial magic wand or rub the proverbial lamp? Is there an illness or an injury that you'd banish from your life or from the life of somebody that you love deeply so they wouldn't have to struggle with it anymore? Is there a loved one you'd bring back? You see, even when we only think of real needs, not just frivolous wants, each one of us, I'm sure, can identify numerous things that we would change in a heartbeat if we could. And that actually has a bearing on where we're going this morning in the Bible. 
This summer we're in a series of sermons. This is the fourth of what will be about 11 by the time we're done, looking at the names of God in the Bible. The Bible uses numerous uh, names and, and titles for God, and several of them get used repeatedly. And we're looking at 11 of the most common names of God because each one of these names says something about who God is. And as Jordan said earlier, our whole theme, our whole focus as a church this summer is connect. We want to connect with God, we want to connect with His church, and we want to connect with one another. Even as we shift gears and, and do some different things programmatically and summer vacations hit, that's wonderful, we embrace that, but we still want to connect. And we're, our, our hope is that by looking at these names of God, it will help us connect with God. Because every one of these names says something about who He is about what he's like and about how we relate to him and about how he relates to us. This morning we are looking at uh, the Bibli- uh, a biblical name and, and, and every week we're taking um, each name, a, a different name and seeking to really answer four simple questions. What does the name mean? Secondly, what does it say about God and who he is? Thirdly, what does that say about how we relate to him today? And lastly, what does it say about the gospel of Jesus, the main story of the Bible? And in every case, we can answer these four questions. Our name this morning is a Hebrew word. These names uh, almost all come from the Old Testament, uh, and it is the Hebrew word Jira, we say. Uh, the Hebrews would have actually pronounced it Yira, but we'll stick with Jira because that's Americanized and we can pronounce it easier. Jira, the word means provider. Provider. God, our provider is a a title, a way of referring to God that crops up repeatedly in the Bible. God is the one who provides. That's the name. And interestingly enough, it it means most straightforwardly provider, but it's a little more nuanced than that. The actual word means to see or to look. God is the one who sees or God is the one who looks. But the implication is that there's, there's more to it than that. God doesn't just see us like God sees everything so he knows what's going on in your life and he sees it and he stands there and he watches you make a train wreck of your life and he says, well, that was dumb. That, that's not the idea that God's just seeing that and he's sort of detached from it or standing back from it. The idea is that God sees the needs of his people and then he moves to meet the needs of his people. That's who he is. And so maybe the, the most natural English way we would translate this is to say that God is the one who looks after people. That's the idea. The way that a mother looks after her young children. So she's constantly seeing. Mom's got the radar going, right? They're out in the park and she's, you know, got one text coming in and she's talking to her husband on the phone at the same time and the friend is over here with her kids also talking to her. But no matter how many things come, moms have this radar that's like locked in on every child, right? (laughs) And like, ooh, Susie's over there and she's getting too close to the street. How did you know that? Because I'm a mom, right? (laughs) You're constantly seeing what are the needs, but, but you're not... You're not disconnected from it. You're not just observing. As a good parent, you're seeing the needs of your children to provide for them, to protect them, to nurture them, to give them what they need. That's, that's the idea here. God is the one who looks after us. He doesn't just see us. He provides for us. He sees our needs, and then he meets our needs. This is what the name means. What does it say about God? That was the first question. What's it mean? Okay, that's what it means. Now, what does this say about God? What does this say about who he is? That's actually the point where this gets really interesting. Because initially, 
we might be left to think, if, if we just kind of blow through this and say, okay, God provides, wonderful, then God must be kind of like Aladdin's genie, right? Surely that must be what the Bible is saying here. We have needs, we rub the lamp. Well, we have a Christian version of rubbing the lamp, right? There's not really a lamp and we don't rub it. Maybe we rub the lamp by praying. God, I need this and I'm praying in faith, so then God provides it. Awesome. That's how the relationship works. Sweet. I tell God what I need. God gives me what I need. Wonderful. Sounds good to me. Sign me up. Or maybe we run, rub the lamp through living the kind of life that we know God wants us to live. I attend church. I'm faithful to attend church. I, I, I study my Bible. I read it. I pray. Um, I try to be a good husband to my wife, a good wife to my husband, good parents to my kids. I try to live the kind of life that I know God wants me to live. And so God, because I've done this, that's like rubbing the lamp. Will you now give me what I need when I ask? Is that what this means? When it says that the Bible says that God is a provider, does it mean that we have a Christian version of Aladdin's genie? Is that what this is saying about him? I tell you, I can see several very real and very legitimate needs in my own life. Even leaving my luxuries and my wants aside, I can immediately think of about a half dozen things I would love to see change in my life. And if I told you what they were, none of you would say they were just frivolous. Yeah, that's real. And I can think of quite a number of ways that those needs could be met. And I bet you could too. So if you and I can see these things, then surely God, Jaira, the one who sees, can see these things as well. And if he can see them, he meets them, or he should. But it turns out when we get to the Bible, it's not quite that simple. Uh, Life is a lot more complicated than that, and God is a lot more complex than that. That leads us to our passage this morning in Genesis chapter 22. And you heard Drath allude to it earlier. It's honestly one of the more uncomfortable stories in the Bible It's also one of the most important stories in the entire Old Testament because of how it sets up everything that comes later in the main message of the Bible. So what we're about to read here, we're about to walk through, is an incredibly, in some ways, uncomfortable story and also an incredibly important story. It's also an amazingly well-constructed story. The book of Genesis was written uh, in the context of ancient Israelite culture, ancient Hebrew culture. Like many peoples around them, there were relatively few people who could read and write in those days. And so even what they wrote was designed to be read. These were stories that were meant to be told and heard to groups of people. And this whole uh, section that we're going to read, these 14 verses, are put together in, in a, a very artful way, just at the level of storytelling. There's several layers of things going on at once. It's designed to grab the reader and draw him or her into the story, not only at a cognitive level, but at an affective level, where we not only think about it, but we feel what the characters are potentially feeling. We, we can't help but put ourselves in the place of the characters of this story because it's so well put together. And at the very end, with all these multiple layers and just when we think we understand it, there's this huge plot twist at the end that changes everything and shows us we read the whole story wrong. And here's what it all really means. It's an amazingly well put together story. It starts with quite a shock. Abraham, who has been uh, walking with God, is told that he is to sacrifice his son. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. 
God said to him, take, one and two, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall tell you. What in the world is this doing in the Bible of all things? Take your only son and kill him. I mean, that's, at a very minimum, that's just horrible murder. But I mean, it's even worse than that. You're a parent. You're supposed to protect and nurture and provide for this child. And what's worse, he's telling him to do, God is telling him to do this as an act of worship. Offer your son on an altar to me as an act of worship. This offends the sensibilities at almost every level. This story begins and right out of the gate, it just clobbers us like a two by four. What in the world is going on here? We know that God is utterly opposed to child sacrifice. In fact, many of the nations around the Israelites at this point in history in the Middle East did have religious uh, rituals in which they would burn their babies alive on an altar to their idols and to their gods. Just a horrible, horrible form of pagan worship. And we know that not too much later, actually in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Uh, God specifically prohibited his people from participating in religious child sacrifice. He said, don't ever do that like the people around you do it. He says, it's an abomination to me. So here God says, child sacrifice is an abomination. And here he says to Abraham, sacrifice your child. And we know that God never changes. So what is going on? The shock is deliberate. It's designed to draw us in. It grabs our attention. We we immediately identify with Abraham. We put ourselves in his position. Uh, Doubly so if you've ever had children of your own. Even if you haven't, it's not that hard to imagine how shocking this would have been for him. And we say, how could God? Did I read that right? What is going on here? The shock and the horror are designed to make us feel the weight of Abraham's test of faith. So what does it say about God? That's the question that we're working with. Well, since, since Abraham is the one that we're identifying with here early in the story, let's look at what Abraham thought it said about God. How did Abraham respond to this shock, this two-by-four across the jaw? Well, in verse 3, Abraham moves to obey. He moves to obey. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything back to God. God says, go do this. And so Abraham rose early in the next morning, saddled his donkey, took two young men and Isaac, cut the wood, and off they go. Whoa, wait a second. We haven't even gotten over the first shock of what God commanded. And I, I, we're still kind of reeling from that And then we get hit immediately with the second shock. Abraham, the guy to whom these words were originally directed, picks up and he just, like he does it. He's going to follow through with it. He's actually going to go through with this. And he doesn't even argue with God. He doesn't even like, God, did I have too much wax in my ears? Did I mishear that? God, are you feeling okay today? Are you you sure that's what you mean? God, how could you? I mean, there's none of that. He's just like silent. Okay. Sacrifice my son, off we go. (laughs) What do we make of that? I don't know about you, I'm not even sure what to make of verse 2 yet, and yet here I am completely confused all over again by verse 3. How could 
He simply move to obey. Abraham is responding as if God, despite what it looks like, is someone to be trusted. Abraham is responding to God as if he is to be trusted, no matter how it looks or how it feels. Now, fortunately, we'll pause um, the story here in just a moment. Let's just drop down to verse 5. The Bible doesn't leave us completely clueless as to what Abraham's thought process was here. Um, If you drop down to verse 5 in the narrative, they take this journey. It was several days away. On the third day, verse 4, Abraham lifted up his eyes. He saw the place. So verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, a couple of servants that are helping him carry their stuff there, uh, along with he and Isaac, he says, you guys stay here. Isaac and I will go over there and worship God and come again to you. Now, in that little bit of dialogue, we get a little bit of a window into what Abraham was thinking and expecting. We don't get much details, but clearly, he not only expected to return to his guys himself, he expected to return with Isaac alive and well. Now, since he was on his way to apparently kill Isaac, his son, how in the world could he expect to return with him alive and well? And this is where we pause for a moment and we get a little bit of context and history uh, from the Bible. It doesn't leave us totally unsure of, of what was going on in Abraham's mind. The New Testament book of Hebrews reflects back on this story And under the inspiration of God's Spirit, the author of Hebrews elaborates a little bit as to what was going on. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19 say this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, meaning put him on the altar to kill him. And he who had received the promises, that's Abraham, was in the very act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now here's what Abraham was thinking. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. There's a context to this story. We're kind of jumping in at the end of about 10 chapters worth of story in Genesis. It begins in chapter 12, and it ends in chapter 22. So we're at 11 chapters worth of of narratives about Abraham. And the bottom line through all of that is this promise that God would give Abraham a son. Abraham and his wife Sarah were far too old to have children at that point. They had never had biological children of their own. And God says, no, you're going to have descendants. But this wasn't just a particular promise that one couple would get to have kids. There was a lot more going on here. God says, through your descendants, so you've got to have a son, and then he's going to have sons and daughters, and then they're going to have sons and daughters, and on and it goes. And someday you're going to have more descendants than you could even count. But here's the key. Through one of your descendants... God told Abraham, clear back in Genesis chapter 12, 10 chapters earlier, through one of your descendants, I will bless the entire world. That's a lot of promises. Abraham's going to have a son. The son's going to have many other descendants that are going to eventually be too many to count. And through one of those descendants, the entire world, all peoples, all ethnic backgrounds, all nations would be blessed. In order for all of that to happen, in order for any of that to happen, the first promise has to be kept. Abraham has to have a son who lives long enough to have children of his own. 
Well, by the time we get to our point in the narrative, Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has had the son. It's, it's a miracle. He and Sarah were way too old to have children. They weren't able to have children in their youth and their vigor. They are way past childbearing age now. Anyway, Sarah gets pregnant. She has a child. It's literally a miracle. But the boy is not yet old enough to be married or to have children of his own. So the test, the tension here in the flow of the biblical narrative is that God is essentially telling Abraham, by killing Isaac, by telling you to kill Isaac, it looks like I am breaking my promise. I promised you'd have son, I promised you'd have many descendants, I promised that through one of those descendants, everybody in the world would be blessed, and if the son never makes it to the age where he can have children of his own, none of that's going to happen. I miraculously provided you the son, and it took a miracle, and I even did the miracle. So, now I'm essentially telling you to kill the son, and my promise will be broken. The real test of faith for Abraham is, can I trust God to keep his promises, even if it takes a miracle? And Abraham's answer was, at this point in his life, yeah. Yeah, I can trust him for that. That's not how he always responded earlier in the story. But as he's walked with God and grown with God and seen the faithfulness of God and witnessed the miracles of God, he's become convinced God can do anything and God will always keep his promises. So, if Isaac dies, then God will raise him from the dead because there's no way God can go back on his promises. Abraham resolved these questions. Can God be trusted by expecting another miracle? Just as he miraculously provided Isaac, he would provide him back should he be lost to Abraham again. Now that's what's happening in the flow of the biblical narrative. That makes a lot more sense out of the thinking process of what the Bible's trying to convey. I don't know that it helps me feel any better about it. And it probably doesn't help you feel much better about it either. I'm willing to guess. I mean, as readers, again, we're still not really sure what to think and feel at this point. I mean, we're having all sorts of horrified, shock-driven doubts about who God is based on what he's commanded and what he's putting Abraham and Isaac through. And as if that's not bad enough, we haven't even resolved any of those doubts or processed that shock. And now we're also watching Abraham see God as totally trustworthy despite what he's commanding. I mean... I don't know about you, I feel like I started this story maybe not 100% sure if God is somebody I can trust. The further the story goes, now I'm not even sure Abraham is somebody I can trust. What's wrong with this guy? What's wrong with this God? What's wrong with these people? This is all a very deliberate part of the storytelling. And this brings us up maybe against the most poignant and personal question, and that's question number three. Question one was, what is the name God sees and provides? Question two, what does it say about the character of God? Well, we've seen this story in which God is going to be called the consummate provider by the end. And we've got a lot of questions about what it says about God's character. Clearly, he's not just a genie. Maybe we're not even sure we can trust him at all. And yet we're seeing Abraham trust him. So Abraham sees him as trustworthy. And we're wrestling with what does it say about God? Well, that brings us up to question number three. How do we relate to God? How does he relate to us? How do we know him and, and, and trust him and interact with him if this is the kind of person he is? 
How do we interact with him based on who he is? How can I trust God as my provider when he doesn't seem to do anything about the very real needs that I bring to him in prayer? Getting a little behind there. How can I trust God to be my provider, to see my needs and meet my needs? How can I trust God to see my needs if, at least according to the example we have in this story, I'm not sure God always sees the needs that I really have. Are you kidding me, God? Like, if this is how God is going to see Abraham's life, how is he going to see my life? What might he ask me to do? What might he allow me to go through that I'm going to say, whoa, whoa, that's no. (laughs) I cannot do that. I need to not do that. And God's like, go do it. Well, wait a minute. How can I trust him to, to see my needs if his view of my needs is so radically different, at least at times? from my own, so much so that it sometimes offends the very core of my sensibilities. And that's just God's way of seeing my needs. What about the actual act of providing for my needs? How can I trust God to be a provider when he doesn't sometimes provide what I think I need, when I think I need it, in the way that I think I need it? I mean, it's wonderful if you're Aladdin and you get to set the terms, right? (laughs) I get to wish for whatever three things I want, and it's totally up to me. I get to decide what's really best for me, and I just wish it into existence. I don't have to check my answers with anybody or answer to anybody. But God is clearly not a genie. He's got his own ideas of what I need and what he's going to provide, and those ideas sometimes don't line up with mine. And so now, how can I trust God? Question number three, how do I relate to him? What do we do with this? The best way I can think to begin to process that question together, and I acknowledge we're only going to begin in the time that we have together to scratch the surface of just a huge, huge set of questions. The best way I can think to do that is to do it through the eyes and the experience of a modern-day Abraham, of a sort, Um, a lady who has wrestled with these questions at least as much as any of us have and a great deal more than many of us have, And I'm referring to a lady some of you know by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, Many of you know her story. Some of you may not. Uh, She's 67 years old, lives in Southern California. Uh, When she was 17, she suffered a diving accident. She dove into water that was shallower than she thought it was and hit her head and broke her neck and suffered paralysis from the neck down as a teenager. She's now 67. She has lived half a century, an entire adult life, as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. What if Johnny had Aladdin's lamp? What do you think she would do with it? There's an obvious answer, right? (laughs) Duh. Do you think she'd rub the lamp? and wish her quadriplegia away? Maybe, I mean, hey, if we're talking about a genie and anything can happen, let me not just wish it away today. Let me wish the last 50 years away. Let me go back to when I was 17 and stop that dive so that I never broke my neck and I never had to deal. And I had a whole new life, not just from this point on, but the whole thing, to live as healthy and free and happy. Many of you know that... um, John Erickson Tata is a, a well-known public speaker and writer, and she's written very honestly, and she's pretty raw, she's pretty honest in her writings about the struggles with pain and paralysis for 50 
years. So she's very honest in acknowledging that there are many times that if she had had that, that lamp, my word's not hers, uh, that, that's probably exactly what she would ask for and wish for. There are times that her suffering has been so overwhelming, multiple times she said, there's no way I can keep doing this. And yet now she looks back and says, but God sustained me through, and God sustained me through, and here I am. But at the time, there's just no way I can do this, and if I could get out, I'd be out. And who could blame her? I wouldn't. Yet, don't be so sure we know the answer to what she would wish. I want to take just a couple of minutes and read something she wrote um, about 10 years ago. Um, This is a couple paragraphs, but I think it's worth reading and just letting her words speak for themselves. She writes this. Years ago, when I snapped my neck under the weight of a dive into shallow water, permanent and total paralysis smashed me up against the study of God. Who is he really? Up until then, I was content to wade ankle-deep in the things of God. But when a severed spinal cord left my body limp and useless, I was hoisted into a dark, bottomless ocean. In the wee, sleepless hours of my early injury, I wrestled against my reformed upbringing. Basically, that means she was like us here at Harvest. We believe God is sovereign. He's in control. (laughs) And now she had to really wrestle with that. No longer were my questions merely academic. This was no casual question and answer session in a living room Bible study. Lying in bed, paralyzed, I fought off claustrophobia with hard-hitting questions. Let me get this straight, God. When bad things happen, who's behind them? You or the devil? Are you permitting this or are you ordaining it? I'm still a young Christian. If you're so loving, why would you treat your children so mean? That was over 38 years ago. Not once in those years has God been mean. What's more, he has satisfied my questions with an intimacy, a softness, and a sweetness of fellowship with the Savior that I wouldn't trade for anything, not even walking. I'm not saying it's easy. Actually, it's getting harder. Uh, These thin, tired bones are beginning to bend under the weight of decades of paralysis. But I have to remember that at the core of God's plan, it is to rescue me from sin even up to my dying breath. My pain and discomfort are not his ultimate focus. He cares about these things, but they're merely symptoms of the real problem. God cares most not about making my life happy and healthy and free of trouble, but about teaching me to hate my transgressions and to keep me growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. God lets me continue to feel much of sin's sting through suffering while I'm headed for heaven, and this constantly reminds me of what I'm being delivered from, exposing sin for the poison that it really is. I can smile knowing that God is accomplishing what he truly loves in my life. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And that's worth quadriplegia any day. (sighs) 
Those last five words are hard to stand in public and read, even though they're not mine. That's worth quadriplegia? I I would never say that of my own accord. I I mean, I actually believe that because the Bible teaches it when it says that, that the sufferings of this present life aren't even worth comparing with the glories that are to be revealed to us, and I believe that's true, and so I will preach that passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8 with conviction, but to say from personal experience, knowing Jesus is worth quadriplegia any day, and I can testify to that, well, I can't. I haven't experienced her kind of suffering. I have my own, but not like this. The words are hard to even read from somebody else's mouth. But when somebody in her position has spoken them and written them, it carries a different weight. I, I share this story because I called her a moment ago a modern-day Abraham. As crazy as Abraham looks and sounds at first in Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11, in reality, this is essentially where he, his head was at. Same place hers is at. This is where his perspective was. Johnny's pain initially led her to question God, but in so doing, she eventually came to question herself. If God sees my need differently than I do, maybe maybe I'm the one who's not seeing my needs with perfect perspective and clarity. If God sees my need is here and I see my need is here, maybe God's not the crazy one. Maybe I'm too limited as a finite human being in my own view of my real needs. And if he's not providing what I believe I need, then maybe he's providing something even better. Friends, that that was Abraham's perspective as he's walking up the mountain with his son. If this takes a resurrection, if this takes a miracle, you know what Abraham was really saying to Isaac, his son? He was saying, son, I I'm not sure. Well, I think he, he thought Isaac was going to die. He was pretty sure he knew what was going to happen. He was pretty sure it was going to be awful. But he said, son, there is no way, no matter what happens, there is no way we come out of this losers. There's no, there's no way. That, that's, just, that's not an option. Because God is who he is, and God is in control. And God promises the best things in the world. So even if I have to die in order to get something greater, even if you have to die in order to get something greater, even if I have to go through this horrific experience, there is just no way we come out of this saying that was the worst thing that ever happened and I'll never be the same again. There's no way we come out of this losers because God is in charge. That's what he says in verse 8. You're back in Genesis 22. When Isaac points out to him, uh, Dad, uh, who, he still doesn't fully know the plan yet, uh, we're going off to worship God. We got the wood, we got the, you know, we're, we're ready to go. We got the fire, we got nothing to offer on the altar. What's the deal? Uh, normally they would sacrifice animals back in that day as, as, as tribute to God. He says, well, where's the animal? Where's the lamb? And notice Abraham's response. God will provide, there's our word, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You know what he's saying? Isaac, God said this. Just go with it. Because there's no way, no matter what happens, we come out of this losers. God is the one who provides. And if he doesn't provide what I think he should provide now, he's going to provide something even better. No matter how much it might hurt in the short run, Abraham trusted God to provide what they needed. Now that brings us up to the last bit 
of this impactful gut punch of a story. I mean, it, it looks to us as readers at this point, by the time we're down into verses 8 and 9, pretty much the way it looked to Abraham. We're headed for child sacrifice. It's as horrifying as that, as that is to us. That's what's about to happen. And perhaps if, if Abraham was right, maybe he would have to kill his own son. He would offer him as a sacrifice to God and then God would miraculously raise him from the dead and they would receive even greater blessings from God both for now and for all eternity. That looks like where we're headed. We're going to have to go through the short-term pain to get to the greatest blessing that could possibly take place. But there's an incredible plot twist that catches us totally off guard as hearers of this story. Just as we're staggering under the weight of this multiple layers of shock and trying to see how deeply this drives us and, and, and process all of this, just when we think, okay, I think I see how this is going to end and I'm not sure I'm ready for this, wham, out of left field, we get run over by a totally different bus that we never saw coming. Huge plot twist. And God changes the whole story. God provides a ram stuck in the thicket, just as, as Isaac is, is bound, uh, apparently, willingly, there's no indication that he fought his father on this thing. He's bound willingly to the wood. Abraham's about to kill him. He's literally got the knife in his hand. God says, stop! There's the ram over in the thicket. Let Isaac go. Don't touch him. Not a hair of his head shall be harmed. You kill the ram and offer it instead. God provides a ram because... Uh, to take Isaac's place. And because of that, they are spared having actually to experience the suffering that they have been anticipating. Now, anticipation itself is a form of suffering that doesn't just make it all okay. There, there was a real suffering here. But clearly, what we thought we were going to have to see Abraham go through with, he doesn't have to go through with. Why? Because God is Yira. Because God provides a ram to die so that Isaac will not have to. And in verses 13 and 14, as the story concludes, Abraham looks up his eyes, he sees the ram, uh, he takes the ram, he offers it as a burnt offering. And then verse 14, Abraham calls the name of the place, the Lord will provide. That's who God is. That's what this place represents. The provision of God that we didn't have to go through with this because he provided a substitute. The sudden twist of plot at the end upends the entire story. Just when we thought we understood what was going to happen, who represents what, who we're supposed to identify with, what the moral of the story was, just about the time we think we've got all that figured out and we're still probably not really happy about it, but at least we understand it. Just when we get to that point, the entire apple cart gets upset. And like a great story, there's a huge plot twist at the end that changes everything. Everything we thought this story was about turns out to be wrong. It's not about God calling for child sacrifice. It's not about Abraham being a fanatic in his devotion to God. It's actually about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. Remember the context of the story we mentioned? 
Abraham was promised to have a son who was going to secondly have many descendants, who thirdly was going to lead to a specific descendant who would bless all the peoples of the earth. Who is that descendant of Isaac, of Abraham, who blessed all the peoples of the earth? Who is that, church? It's Jesus Christ. Thousands of years later, but a direct descendant of Abraham and Isaac who bled and died on the cross so that you and I might have eternal life. This whole scene actually isn't about Abraham or Isaac at all. It turns out it's a, it's a little diorama. It's a, it's a little stage play in a shoebox that is depicting the very real events that will take place when Jesus dies on the cross in the place of sinners so that we would not have to. Jesus is the descendant of Isaac who offers life to the whole world that God promised back in Genesis 12. The mount of the Lord that Abraham names on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Whoa, talk about a prophetic statement. I don't think Abraham had any idea the impact of what he was saying. But the story concludes with Abraham calling the place on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And it was on Mount Calvary that God provided the substitute sacrifice so that you and I would not have to die for our sins. Jesus is the descendant of Isaac who offers his life to the world. The Mount of the Lord is not Mount Moriah back then. It is Mount Calvary. It's pointing ahead to the real Mount of Provision. Isaac is, is sort of a, a forerunner of Jesus. He depicts Jesus. Isaac carries the wood of his sacrificial altar up the mountain, just as Jesus carried the wood of his own cross up the hill to Calvary. And Isaac is willingly bound to the wood to be made a sacrifice for God, just as Jesus was willingly nailed to the cross to be a sacrifice to satisfy the righteousness of God on behalf of guilty sinners like you and me. But, you know, the parallels end there and they suddenly change. Because if Isaac had died and been risen from the dead, then Isaac would be the consistent parallel of Jesus all the way through the story. But that's not what happens, is it? Isaac doesn't die. Abraham doesn't have to kill his child. Isaac doesn't have to give up his life. And so with this plot twist at the end where Isaac is set free and God provides a ram, it suddenly changes all the reference Who's symbolizing what and who's foreshadowing whom? Suddenly now Isaac is not the primary foreshadower of Jesus. The ram is the primary foreshadower of Jesus. Like Isaac, Jesus went willingly to the place of sacrifice, but unlike, Jesus, unlike Isaac, Jesus actually went through with the sacrifice. <laughs> the story shifts and suddenly it is now this ram that depicts our Savior in the finality of his sacrifice in place of people so that they would not have to die. This, what this means is that all of our questions from the beginning of the story have actually been wrong. All our questions have been wrong. Up to now, we've been identifying with Abraham and the position he was in, and we've been saying to God, how could you put him in this position? How could you put anyone, including maybe me someday? I don't know if I can trust you. But now we realize we've identified with the wrong person. We're not the ones who stand in Abraham's place having to sacrifice our own child. God the Father is the one who does that. We don't identify with Abraham. God does. I am the one who will sacrifice my son so that you don't have to spend eternity in hell, so that you don't have to die. 
This is all pointing to the gospel of Christ. We're actually Isaac. We're the ones who should have died. We should have faced hell. We should have faced the eternal consequences of our sins. But we get off scot-free. Why? For one reason and one reason only. Because God is Jireh. He is the one who provides. We get off because he sees our need and out of nowhere he miraculously provides a substitute. And that substitute turns out to be God himself. Come to this earth as a man, Jesus Christ, to sacrifice himself on our behalf so that we, like Isaac, skitter off the altar without a hair of our head being damaged. He sees our real need and he provides that real need at tremendous cost to himself. And so our questions have all been wrong. The question is not, God, how could you do this to Abraham and Isaac? And what does that say about you? By the time we get to the end of the story, we now realize that the right question is, oh my God, how could you do that for us? And what does that say about who you are? The giving one, the merciful one, the God who will go through unimaginable pain and suffering, even though he had, we had no right to expect that he would or should. But he will do it because he is loving and he is merciful and he is gracious. He will go through unbelievable, unimaginable humiliation and pain and suffering for the redemption of sinful people like you and me. And in his provision, we find life, not only now, but for all eternity. Referring to the pains and sufferings associated with life in this sin-cursed world, the Bible says that this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison because God is a provider. Friends, the point of this whole story, the entire message of the Bible, which is so poignantly captured in this gripping, gut-wrenching, well-told story, is simply this. In coming to this earth as a man, Jesus Christ, and suffering and dying and then rising from the dead in our place, God has provided the way that you and I could find life now and forever at no cost to us, at unimaginable cost to himself because that's who he is. He will see the need of his children and he will move to provide it no matter the cost, even when they don't deserve it. Even when the cost of his life is so much more valuable than the cost of my life, he lays it down anyway, not because I'm as valuable as him, not by a long shot, but because he is a sacrificer, he is a lover, he is a merciful and gracious God. It's just who he is. So when we look at this name, God Jaira, provider. What does it say about his character? It says that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have encountered a love the likes of which, as Tim Keller says, you could never have hoped for and you could never dare dream was possible. But that's the love that God has for us and he showed it, not just in theory, but in practice when he came to suffer and die for us. This story beckons us to find life in Christ. I want to encourage you, if you need to talk with somebody about beginning or deepening a relationship with Jesus Christ, to understand what this, this all means and how it relates to you. That's what we're here for as a church. We would love to connect with you, many of our pastors and elders, right after the service. 
or fill out a connection card if you'd prefer us to get in touch with you later this week. Don't leave here without knowing that you have come face to face with the heart of a God who gave everything for you. Father, we come before you utterly devastated emotionally by this story. But even more than the story, devastated by what it, it points to, the reality of the sacrifice that you wouldn't just make or theoretically talk about, you would make if the need ever arises. It is something you have actually done. And so, Jesus, we come before you as a Jesus people, a gospel-shaped church full of people who delight to celebrate the fact that you would come and sacrifice for us. And in your death, we find the redemption of our sins. In your life, we find new life. And God, I pray that we would be so enamored with that, the members of our church, so deeply moved by the gospel that we would already consider our lives dead, that there would be nothing we fear losing here because we've already gained the greatest thing imaginable. And may we live lives of sacrificial service and joy because we've already found the greatest treasure in the world. That is your love for us. And Jesus, as we lift your name up, we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would draw men and women to the Savior. And we pray that you would do this in your name and for your glory. 